Grab a Bible, open it to James chapter 3, that's where we'll be this morning. I want to start this morning by showing you three pictures. Let's give you the first. This is 10-year-old Ben. Circa 1985, a good kid, a happy kid, collected baseball cards, loved the TV show The Gummy Bears, and the Denver Broncos had just traded for John Elway. Pretty good year. I'll give you the second picture. This is present-day Ben, age 46. Taken about two weeks ago in my car after I got my first pair of glasses because my eyes are failing. A decent adult, maybe. College and seminary graduate. Blessed to have married so well with three incredible kids and a pretty decent dog. Still has baseball cards. Haven't bought any in decades. Gummy Bears hasn't been on TV in 30 years, but still loves the Denver Broncos, even though we badly need a quarterback. (laughs) And finally, the last one. This is future Ben, made with a fancy iPhone app that adds about 30 years of aging to my picture. This picture anticipates me at 76. Lucky Pam, right? (laughs) By God's good grace, I would love to be a grandpa. I would love to be involved in mentoring younger pastors, but who knows what God has in store. With any luck, I will have sold my baseball cards and retired my Broncos will have won five or six more Super Bowls and will be living well. Do you know what you see in those pictures? The progress of maturity. I grew up. I grew taller. My hair turned grayer. And if it my, my dad at some point, I'll turn the corner from turning gray to turning white. I've got more wrinkles. I'm maturing. It's a natural thing for all humans. Now let's think about spiritual maturity. In John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is not without purpose that Jesus would suggest the idea of coming to faith is like spiritual birth. So to come to Christ makes you something like a spiritual baby. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul isn't just talking about physical maturity. He's alluding to spiritual maturity to growing up. Beloved, we weren't intended to come to salvations, be spiritual babies and stay there. We were called to mature, to mature theologically, to mature mentally, to mature emotionally, to mature psychologically, to mature behaviorally. All of those are subsets of spiritual maturity. That as you look at my pictures and I got more wrinkles signifying more age, As you look at a believer in Jesus Christ, like wrinkles testify to maturity, obedience ought to be our testimony. 
You ought to be able to look at us and we start to look differently. We reveal something else. We're maturing. It's the aim of our faith. Consider what Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim. That's the gospel. That's salvation. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Sanctification, right? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, that's the aim of our faith. That's the aim of our public gatherings. That we would proclaim Jesus Christ and the power of His grace for salvation. That we would know and believe we could be forgiven of our sins. To know that we could be set next to Jesus Christ on His throne. That we would be heirs of eternity. And we would know and proclaim that Jesus Christ who defeated sin and death, has given us His grace that we might live in obedience and maturity. That's the gospel. I take you to the words of Jesus, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's evangelism. That's coming to Christ. Now listen to this, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's sanctification. That's gospel obedience. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Beloved, I'm not trying to belabor this, but as we keep moving in James, I get pushback at times from people who think that calls for maturity or any call towards obedience is a move towards Phariseeism or it's a move away from the gospel. And I think we at times need to step into that. We need to be reminded or even taught that the grace of Jesus Christ is pardon. It's never less than that. But the grace of Jesus Christ is also power. And it's never less than that. That we might be saved and then transformed. I could keep making that argument in a lot of ways I will for the next couple of chapters. But we can move on and because we need to pray about our time in the book of James. So pray with me. Gracious Father, thank you for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you for the gospel that reminds us that all of our sin is forgiven in Christ. Thank you that even the power of sin to hold us in bondage has been broken. Thank you for the freedom that you've granted us in Jesus Christ. Father, would you remind us of the power of your grace that calls us to maturity. And Father, would you remind us of the promise that you're, of your word that you will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. So Father, as we step into your word this morning, would you remind us of the sufficiency of your grace and the conviction of sin? For Father, where we are not living according to your word, would you show that to us? That we might repent 
and go to Jesus for the mercy and grace that we need so that we might be called to a greater maturity. Father, we trust your word will accomplish all that's been sent for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in our series in the book of James. To the most part, you will find I'm always teaching entire books of the Bible. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. I've got a host of reasons. But we're in a series in the book of James entitled Portraits of Maturity. Considering that thematically, the book of James is about being called to spiritual maturity. Which is to say it's a book written to people who've already believed in Jesus Christ who've submitted to his authority that they might be called up. I like to say it's a book written by a servant of Christ, a servant of Christ on serving Christ. It's about pursuing obedience. But it always starts with understanding that it's written to believers. Because it helps us to create the clarity. James isn't calling us to moralism. He's calling us to live out what we have in Jesus Christ. We should understand Jesus, James is not calling us to perform. He's proclaiming to you and I the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Consider James's words, 121. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. God's word is in us. It's accomplishing his purpose. We're pushed to pursue obedience. James is arguing for spiritual maturity. And if we were to track through this book, we would see, as we've seen, that spiritual maturity is developed by suffering. We saw that in chapter 1. The spiritual maturity is built upon reading and obeying the Word of God. We saw that at the end of chapter 1. We saw that spiritual maturity is evidenced by our works. We saw that in chapter 2. This morning, he's going to apply that very specifically this morning to the reality that our spiritual maturity is evidenced by our tongues, or if you'd like to say it this way, our mouths, or more simply, what we say, how we speak, what we talk about, how we use our voice. And James has a pretty developed theology on this. He's been addressing it throughout his book, you might Remember in chapter 1, be slow to speak. A couple of verses later, exhort you, bridle your tongue. So when you get to chapter 3, it's not like he's coming out of nowhere. James has been building us towards this. So now we land in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. James begins this section with a warning. In fact, he'll bring lots of warnings to us in this passage. Not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because if you teach, you talk. And if you talk, you're likely to stumble. And if you stumble as a teacher, it will have ramifications. Church, I could testify to you of things that have come out of my mouth that I didn't intend to say that have harmed people. I've apologized for that. I've owned that. It's why I manuscript now. It makes me much more careful with the individual words that I'm saying. 
you have to be so, so careful because teaching has ramifications. So James says, not many of you should become teachers. And then he goes on to add, and this is grace for teachers, for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's pointing out the fact you all stumble, I stumble, we all will stumble, but yet he seems to suggest that the tongue is an indicator of something else. Seems to be indicative of something. And in fact, the scriptures would argue your tongue is an indicator of your heart. Jesus says so much in Matthew 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouths reveal our hearts. So trash coming out of our mouths reveal trash in our hearts. It's as if he's suggesting if you can manage your mouth, you've got a managed heart. If you cannot manage your mouth, it's because your heart is unmanaged. Now James does seem to suggest it's impossible, or at least unlikely, to do this. We all stumble in many ways. He'll add later in verse 8, No human being could tame the tongue. Thus no man is perfect, save for Jesus Christ. Which at some level, church, we need to acknowledge, we should step into this idea of taming your tongue, bridling your tongue, is one of those races that will be a lifetime pursuit. It's one of those races you probably won't win here because you won't reach perfection. Rather, you will reach perfection when sanctification becomes glorification when the one who's begun a good work in you has completed it. And yet, there's warning. There's something about this scripture that seems to suggest as we move through it that we're going to be tempted to believe this sin doesn't matter. This sin is not a big deal. It's okay. We'll talk about that in Romans 6 here in a little while. But it's not. Spiritual maturity looks like a tamed tongue. That's what we're called to pursue in Jesus Christ. That's the obedience that we're called to in Jesus Christ. It's the one thing that gives evidence to our transformation of Jesus Christ. Now, James illustrates the importance of our tongue in a couple of ways. He's going to bring three quick illustrations, starting in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. He gives us two illustrations here. He'll give us a third in a minute. My sister was a horseman. Perhaps I should say she was a horsewoman. She began riding in her early teen years, so I had the chance to be around horses a lot as a teenager. What was always fascinating to me is these huge, strong, 1,200-pound animals capable of carrying carts and riders, capable of work that surpasses humans. 
I mean, have you thought about that? I mean, you don't drive a car and mark it by bend power, horsepower, suggest that these things are strong, and yet you direct it with a small piece of metal. You move it around, left, right, you show it where to go, its direction is dictated by this little piece of metal. You aren't a horse person? Think about ships, sailboats, carrying goods, carrying people, moving around in the water beautifully, large, and directed by a small rudder. Small piece of wood dictating what direction it's headed. You're not into horses. You're not into sailboats. Let's try fire. Everybody likes fire. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Think about a match. Seems innocent enough. And yet if you were to look into it, the forest department suggests that more than 88% of all forest fires... Last year, meaning is the one that destroyed huge parts of California, huge parts of Colorado, huge parts of Canada. Remember when our our sky turns gray and you can't really breathe outside? It's because somebody messing with a match didn't mind it. Caused a massive fire, causing massive destruction. Sure, they were innocent in what they were doing, right? Let's just cook some hot dogs. Friends, James is wanting us to understand more than that our tongues reveal our hearts. He's trying to help us understand that our tongues reveal our direction. He's wanting us to understand that our tongues cause massive damage. He's being clear about that. Staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. He will step back into verse 8 by saying it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do you you think about that? That's your tongue? Full of deadly poison? Let's finish the passage. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. Friends, James is putting before us this reality, this picture, this idea that as believers in Jesus Christ, who were once enslaved to sin, but have been set free from sin, who've been redeemed and are being redeemed, 
That God is trying to transform you. He's at work transforming you. And though your tongue is impossible to fully tame, the text would tell you that, it does reveal your heart. It does reveal your direction and it does cause damage. So church, what do we do? I have four thoughts. First, we need to own this passage. We should realize the destruction and the depravity of our souls. We should realize that our tongue reveals the depth of our sin. We should realize that we have very polluted hearts. And I'm not joking. This text is not kidding around. We have it. It's calling this dangerous. So we should confess it. Well, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is called to do, that we would be able to confess our sins. And that we confess them specifically. Friends, if we were to dig into the scripture on this, by the way, at one point I had five pages in this section. I cut it down a lot. This is what we'd find. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Colossians 3, 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I could keep going. The Bible teaches on gossip, slander, Scorn, mocking, scoffing, different words, being quarrelsome, contentious, or argumentative, depending on your translation, teaches about strife, manipulation, boasting, criticizing, harshness, abusiveness, grumbling, discontentment, promise-breaking, flattering, meddling, and stirring up divisions. Those are the distinctions in the text I could come to on sins of the tongue. Chapters and verse on all of them. They're all called sin. So this is what Jesus, this is what James is pointing us to. This is what he's calling us away from. That we might confess these things specifically. But we're called to hold on to our tongues. And we're called to confess sin. 
For in 1 John, we have a great promise. A great promise we should cling to. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the distinction of Christians is not that we don't sin. The distinction of Christians is what do we do when we do sin? See, that's what ought to set us apart from the world. When we sin, and the text has made it kind of clear that's all of us, in regards to our tongues, we confess. We go to our Savior with specific words, specific ownership of our deeds, and we turn to Him and we say, Jesus, I am falling short. I try, but things come out of my mouth that I don't intend. Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm prideful. Sometimes I'm wrathful. Sometimes I'm rash. We want to confess those things specifically. Beloved, so often we can get caught up into this process where we think confession of sin is generic. God, I sinned this week. Take care of all of it. Thanks. Cool. When we confess our sins, church, this is the gospel. He is faithful. The distinction of believers is we confess our sins. Why? Because he's faithful. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ died on a cross. He took on your sin at the cross. It's already been paid for. He was faithful in dealing with your sin. And you've been forgiven. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We fall short. We confess. We go to Jesus. That's spiritual maturity. Secondly, I want to remind us of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We're going to remind you of the gospel. The death of Christ paid for all of our sin. I want to remind us of the gospel. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. I want to remind us of the gospel. He understands we fall short. And he's given us his grace that we would be forgiven. And he's given us his grace that we might be transformed. That brings us to number three. We need to be reminded that the grace that saves us empowers us to fight sin. Empowers us to bridle our tongues. Empowers us to watch what 
we say. It empowers us that our mouth might be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So that your words might be a breath of fresh air to those who are around you. That it might be the aroma of Christ to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your friends. Kevin DeYoung calls the spirit-powered, grace-driven, faith-fueled effort. That Christ has redeemed us and given us power to fight sin. Romans 6 will say a lot about this. And I'm going to read it. And I'm going to read all of it. And I'm going to read it slowly that you and I might take it in. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For we've been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. I tried for a couple hours to put it in different words. I wanted to say that. Paul says it better. Finally, I want to remind you of the mirror in James 2. You remember James 2, he talks about the mirror. You look in it so that you might see who you are. He gives you the negative example that you would see who you are. And if you walk away forgetting what you look like, it just gives you a picture of disobedience. Therefore, what you're supposed to do is look in the mirror... And be reminded of who you are. 
being reminded of what you look like. Beloved, if you remember the illustration, he's talking about God's Word as the mirror. We need to be reminded to keep our face in the mirror. We need to be reminded to keep our face in the mirror so that we would be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. That we'd be reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That we'd be reminded that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. That we could be reminded that sin has no power in our lives any more because Jesus, of Jesus Christ. We'd be reminded that Jesus Christ is advocating for you and for me at the right hand of the Father even now. We'd be reminded that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf to the Father even now. So you'd be reminded that in the gospel you have all the fuel you need to understand the forgiveness of your sins accomplished by Christ. You'd have all you need to understand you have the fuel to walk away from sin because of Christ's work. So let's pray. And let's pray. And we're going to start with confession. I'm going to give you a minute to confess, to think about your tongue. For we'd be remiss if we didn't take this opportunity. Heavenly Father, we are taught in Hebrews 4 that we come to your throne room. That we're welcomed into your throne room because of the blood of Jesus. That we're to come to you with confidence that we might receive the mercy and the grace that we so desperately need. So Father, we know that we can come to you confidently And though it's not intuitive, we can confess our sin to you. We can own that we fall short. We can confess that we use our tongues in inadequate and insufficient ways. We can confess that we lie. We deceive. 
and we're mean. We're harsh. We gossip. And we slander. And we boast. And we grumble. Father, we can confess our sins to you, believing and clinging to your promise that you are faithful and just that You will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, we bring our sin to You. And we trust that at the cross of Christ it was taken care of. And we can be forgiven. It doesn't matter the quantity of our sin. Or the quality of our sin. It is all forgiven in Jesus Christ. We've been cleansed from our unrighteousness. Fathers, we walk away here this morning. Would you remind us that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation? That you are not desiring anyone to walk away from here? feeling awful about themselves. For that's true, they've missed Christ. You've welcomed us, you've encouraged us. It's not a trap, it's not a trick. That your grace is sufficient. And that you would give us the boldness and the confidence to come back over and over and over again always confessing our shortcomings, always receiving the mercy and grace we need. And God, that You would remind us that sin has no power over us. And that You would call us to greater and greater and greater maturity in Jesus Christ. That our lives might be a better reflection of His character. that You would complete the good work that You've started in us. That You would set us apart. That You would make us holy. That You would make us the aroma of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Like wrinkles on an old man declare maturity, may our obedience declare our maturity in Christ. We trust you for this. We ask you for this. We pray for this. Thankful for Christ all through it. In his name we pray. Amen.